0: That music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore,
1: and this is Lois Richter on a bright, beautiful, sunny Davis day. And so, Don, it's sunny again. They keep telling us in the weather report that it's it's fog burning off, but
0: there was patchy fog this morning, just barely still there at sunrise here on the farm in Dixon. Patchy fog this morning, and then sunny as we broadcast, and we are recording this on. November 3rd it will broadcast on November 4 2021 the temperature right now is 50 degrees and it's going up to a high today of 70 because it is going to be and is clear and sunny, however, little change tonight showers are likely after 11pm with increasing clouds and a low tonight only about 55 I don't know if you all have noticed locally the night temperatures have been pretty warm. Uh, tomorrow is going to be chance of showers and sunny, 68 degrees. And then Thursday night, we begin a cooling process, 45 degrees with cleared skies on Thursday night. Friday, mostly sunny, dropping to 65. Friday night, 47. Saturday is going to be mostly cloudy with 62 degrees. Saturday night, 45. And Sunday will be 60 degrees and partly sunny. And let's see what they're saying about next week. Sunday night, slight chance of showers dropping down to 43. So 55 tonight. 43 Sunday night. Notice the trend. <laughs> Monday, chance of showers, mostly cloudy. The high is only going to be 58 on Monday. Monday night, showers likely because of the clouds should only drop down to about 48. And Tuesday, showers likely mostly cloudy with a high near 57. Some smallish storms coming our way going to give us showers, some more rain on top of the 7 to 10 inches uh, experienced about a week or so ago here in the Sacramento Valley. And notice that rapid drop in temperatures that is actually very normal for this time of year. Average high on November 1 in Davis, 72, average high on November 30th, 60. So, 12 degree drop, and the night temperatures drop from 48 to about 42. I had an interesting question, let's just get jump right into this one and then we'll come back to our public service announcements. Someone asked me a little while ago, What's our growing season here in Davis, California? And I thought, <laughs> We never use that term, we simply <laughs> don't. Use- well, we don't use the term growing season. It, it is, there is no time that we can't be out doing things in the garden, but there is an official definition of growing season. It is considered to be the longest continuous period of non-freezing temperatures, that is to say above 32 degrees Fahrenheit in the year. So where we are, the growing season, according to them, <laughs> is typically 11 months from about January 23rd to about December 14th rarely starting after February 25th and rarely ending before November 19th, and that does reflect our typical frost pattern. Our first frost is nearly always right around Thanksgiving. I go out and I take a picture of it, and this is so consistent over the years that I think I can safely say that one. It's rare for it to be earlier than about Thanksgiving. Our last significant frost is usually around Valentine's. So we have a pretty high likelihood of frost anytime between about the 1st of December and about the middle of February. I have pictures of frost in March, and I have a picture of a very light frost on April 6th one year. That did not do any significant damage, but it was a frost. It was actual visible frost. Conditions that lead to the formation of ice crystals on the top of a plant or a surface don't necessarily mean anything with respect to your ability to garden. So the point is and this came up in the context of a talk I was giving about winter gardening. How could you garden in the winter if you have no growing season, you know, you know, if, you're, if you're out of your growing season at that point? Well, there's all these cool season flowers and vegetables that we talk about all the time on this show. And that was what the whole presentation was about. Although the cool season things like lettuces and broccolis and spinach and all that and all the flowers like snapdragons, pansies, violas. If you're not from this area, those are things we plant in the fall and winter to bloom in the winter and spring, and they're not hurt by temperatures in the upper 20s to 30 degree range. They're not even hurt by temperatures in the mid-20s. And in the years that we've had serious freeze events, like 1990 when we got to 16 degrees, 1998 when we got to 19 degrees, and as recently as three years ago when we got to 23 degrees one morning for several hours they're not harmed by that. You may go out and see a little bit of damage to the blossom. The leaves of your lettuce that happen to be open to the sky might get a little injured, but the plant overall is not harmed. And generally, we don't even see that kind of damage. So growing season is one of those terms that comes from places where it means the end of your planting cycle, and you wait until it's over that period of the interregnum where it's it's too snowy, cold, freezing, whatever, and then you start up again, that doesn't happen here. So our growing season in lowland California, that is to say the coastal areas, Southern California, here in in the Sacramento and San Joaquin valleys, is basically year round. There's no time when you can't be growing things.
1: And frost is different than freeze, right?
0: Oh yeah, frost is just a condition. I mean, frost happens when we're 31 degrees, 32 degrees. It doesn't mean that the plants are injured except for the plants that we expect to be injured. And we'll be talking about that. I would say in about three to four weeks, we're likely to have our first frost. We're well on that trajectory.
1: Thanksgiving is coming up.
0: Don't. You know, three weeks away. And, you know, people are asking now if it's too late to plant this or too late to plant that, or if it's a good time to plant thus and such, avocados, citrus, you know, they're buying out some bi- fibrous begonias. Is this a good time to plant these? Uh, well, no, those are things that will be injured by a frost. But there's there, there's so many things that are not affected by frost that, again, our growing season is just a theoretical construct. Public service announcements, what have you got there?
1: 11th of November, of course, is Veterans Day, and there's always celebrations, VFW, whatever. Um, This year is the 100th anniversary of the creation of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And Mel Russell, who is the retired Yolo County archivist, was coordinating a whole bunch of events all over the county for the month of November. But they're all on hold because of the pandemic, so they will be reinstituted next year for the hundred and first anniversary, but um, there are things happening so remember that's Thursday the 11th of November in the USA.
0: And an upcoming event at the UC Davis Arboretum, Mighty Oaks, a panel discussion will be held Tuesday, November 9, 4 to 5.30 p.m. You register. There is a cost, a nominal cost for attending. It's an online presentation. So go to arboretum.ucdavis.edu. Hey, if you want to check out some of the other great programming here on KDRT, there is all kinds of interesting programming here. Here's a show that's been on KDRT for quite a while. You can join Nancy around the campfire to hear authentic Western music and cowboy poetry. Something deep in your soul will resonate to stories from the early Wranglers, Mexican Vaqueros, Old West adventurers, silver screen buckaroos, contemporary real cowboys, and all who appreciate the wide open spaces, freedom, and the Western lifestyle. Cowboy Tracks is presently playing Fridays at 1 to 2 PM. Replays a couple times during the week. So for the rebroadcast time and any new broadcast changes in the upcoming schedule, visit kdrt.org. That's cater.org, and click on the schedule guide. And I actually have a tree question for you. Can I
1: slip that in before we get into the mailbox? Yeah. Okay. So Eric Kahn, a wonderful friend um, and a professor on campus, who was involved in acacia trees for years and years. In fact, there's an acacia grove over there because of him. So I'm a Quaker, and at the Quaker Meeting House, we want to plant an acacia in honor of Eric Kahn, who was also a Quaker. And we've been looking at acacias and I've been hearing, especially from you, that most acacias don't do well here, Mm -hmm. but there are a few that might. Which ones are the ones that might?
0: It's a long list. Acacia is a genus with many, many species, most of which are tropical or subtropical. And so it's important to know that most of them are not quite cold hardy enough to grow here, which is a lesson that the arboretum itself learned in the hard way when they planted quite a number of species in the 1970s. I remember that collection down there before there were paths and benches and signage. In 1990, We got 16 degrees and that took care of the acacia collection. So they started over, some survived, some came through, but most were just outright killed. Now that was a once in a, let's say century freeze, 16 degrees and below freezing for actually two weeks, not below freezing all day, but every night, well below frost and down to 16 and then 19. And then they replanted with ones that were considered to be hardier. So anyone looking in USDA zone nine, or Sunset Zones 8, 9, and 14, for species within the genus Acacia that are known to be hardy in this climate zone, should just head on over to that collection at UC Davis Arboretum and walk through there because one of the things that Dr. Kahn did was uh, a bequest to the Arboretum to uh, put in paths and benches and signage in what is now a lovely part of the Arboretum with well-established Acacia trees of species that do in fact grow here. As a retailer, I then have the experience of people going over there, taking pictures of the signs, and coming in and saying, hey, can you get this? And the answer is, nope. The nursery industry barely grows acacias just as the nursery industry barely grows eucalyptus. And There's a really simple reason. and It has ties into why you're replacing this acacia. They grow so fast, they fall apart. It's really that simple. They have poor attachments of the branches in many cases. Now, it's a huge genus. Those of you interested in taxonomy, just as with eucalyptus, it's been split up into a bunch of other genera. It was considered that the genus was too broad and needed to be refined, and so it's been split. But it's a huge group of plants. They tend to grow very fast. The tree forms have a short lifespan, those that we can grow. Uh, They grow very rapidly. 10 years in, branches are splitting out, the plant kind of falls apart. Acacias can be a very cool and interesting part of a rural landscape property. I have thought of putting some in here out on my farm on the fringes of the orchard, because they bloom very, very early. Some of the acacias are the very first trees to bloom here in the Sacramento Valley, and also in the San Francisco Bay Area. Acacia baileana, which is the most widely planted acacia, and the cultivar at purpurea, or atropurpurea, sold both ways, which just has a more dark blue tinge to the new growth and, and and a bluer foliage than the species is overwhelmingly the most commonly planted acacia species in Northern California. And they bloom in January, bright yellow flowers. Here are some great common name confusion. Those flowers are called mimosas. Mimosas, Uh a name that is applied to, one, a Sunday morning beverage that contains alcohol, two, (laughs) a bunch of things like silk trees, which aren't acacias at all, and of course the acacias. And mimosa refers, for example, as I learned from one customer, to the clusters of those yellow flowered branches that are sold in Italy for a particular holiday that's very early there before spring, They're acacia branches. Uh, So common name confusion in there. The percentage of acacias that can grow in the USDA zone nine is a fraction of the genus, a tiny fraction. Most of them are tropical and subtropical plants. Some of them are horribly invasive in the subtropics and tropics. Some acacia species are among the worst invaders in Hawaii, for example, but there are some that you can grow. And as with all these woody plant groups from those regions, there are tree forms, big bushes, smaller bushes, and ground cover forms. What they have in common is all of them, to my knowledge, are puffy little yellow flowers. Uh, Some of them have fascinating foliage that isn't foliage. So if you're ever taking botany, there's a high likelihood that you'll encounter acacias because many of them have cladodes instead of leaves.
1: Does it do the same thing as a leaf?
0: Yes, but it's not a leaf. So it's a flattened stem that functions as a leaf. A cladode is a a flattened stem. So you can tell because the venation is different. It has evolved to function as a leaf. And every now and then, this kind of fascinates botany students, an actual leaf may pop out at the end of the cladode. So they would be looking at an acacia that has this strange, flattened, weird foliage, and then poof, there's a puff of some kind of weird foliage at the end of it. So they're a strange plant from a botanical, taxonomic, and, and anatomical standpoint. The number that we can grow up here is pretty small. They are extremely drought tolerant. Typically, acacias can be planted and then left without irrigation once they're established. So they do fit in with plantings of California native plants, Mediterranean, South African, Australian, and so forth, the kind of low water plants that are becoming very popular. But because of their very rapid growth habit, uh, I got a question from another member of your congregation about this, quickly looked up and found a grand total of three species of acacias that I can get from any of about a half dozen suppliers right now. So if you want an acacia for its symbolic value, one that's become incredibly popular in the marketplace, and a lot of you who do container plantings probably already know this one. If you don't, you should probably get to know it. It's called Cousin It, with two Ts, Cousin It. From the old TV show. It shows.
1: looks like Cousin Idiot. Really the old is.
0: TV show was that the Adams family or the Munsters? I don't remember. <laughs> and, family. Uh, and it makes this little mound of mop. I mean, it really is, uh, it's cladodes, not leaves, and it's this little mound of foliage. Uh, They're popular in containers because they're very interesting texture and foliage. They're a shiny, lustrous green, very cool little plant. We know they're cold hardy here. I don't know how much cold hardier they are, but I suspect they'll go down perhaps to USDA zone eight, certainly fine in zone nine. And uh, my first question when this came on the market and got promoted heavily by all the growers I work with, all of a sudden they all had this, what does it do in the landscape? Well, good news. We have a landscaper in Davis who's been installing them here and there. So there are a number of them that are several years old, at least. And they make a shrub that looks like it's about four feet. It's a little mop mound in your your garden. It's a cool little plant, but you got to locate that carefully with the interesting growth habit and texture. So that would be a good acacia for a symbolic acacia. It's not going to be a tree and no structural issues.
1: And when he says small, it's twice the height of a cat. And I know this because I went on Google <laughs> and I searched for cousin it Acacia and I have all these pictures of it and there's the the picture of the acacia with the cat.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what? You got to measure it somehow, you know? You can't tell from a picture.
0: It's a, it's a little mop thing It's cute and it's an acacia. So that might fill the bill. Although there's also, uh, for whatever reason, one of my growers has started doing acacia cultra, formis. Cultra means knife. It happens to have cladodes replacing the leaves that are sharp on the edges so you might you know you're planting a razor blade plant in your in your landscape probably not appropriate at the meeting house but no. there, there are some very 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 interesting acacias not a group you're going to see used a lot in the landscape partly because of the some of them are short-lived in the lifespan the trees whenever someone comes in and asks me about an acacia tree if i can look at a, a layout of their property it's the kind of thing i would put way in the back corner uh, acacia baliana would be a good example 20 25 feet 20-year tree starts to fall apart, that can be okay. I mean, on my own property, I plan for things that are going to fall apart with age and create habitat. So that's cool. But in a normal, refined-looking backyard, I suspect most of the acacias will be pretty unsuitable. I always get questions about them in January when there's apparently quite a lot of them planted along Highway 680. And they come into bloom in January. So people come in and ask me, what's that yellow flowering thing along the freeway? I know it's not an oleander, it's the usual conversation. Correct, those are Acacia baliana.
1: So is this a possibility to espalier next to the-
0: the, the wall? no, no, you could prune it as a hedge, I guess, if you wanted to. But the problem is, it always makes me nervous uh, with plants like this because it's a soft wooded plant like a ceanothus and many others Mm -hmm. and pruning on those at least in some of our natives, where they have that kind of softwood, if you prune them at the wrong time, you can get disease problems going. I would put an acacia of any kind where it can just do its own thing. And I would just choose one that doesn't get too big. Now, for your own particular situation, being here in Davis, uh, there's a great collection in the Arboretum. There's people that propagate things from the Arboretum. I would just have your congregation send an official letter to the Arboretum and say, hey, can we get a hold of this in honor of Dr. Kahn? Because he was certainly well-known and very active in the Arboretum as well. So they would probably be willing to do something like that. But in the trade, no, they are a very small number of them in the in the commercial nursery trade. Things that grow too fast and have limited demand aren't gonna happen. That's why you can hardly find any eucalyptus trees in, in nurseries. It's not that there's no place that's appropriate for a euc- eucalyptus tree. It's that most of the places they were planted in the pla- past we're not really appropriate for eucalyptus trees the demand is low you stick a one gallon eucalyptus into a five gallon pot to grow it on up for sale in three months it's already seven feet tall it's already root bound and uh, when they get you know after a wholesaler is thrown out a bunch of overgrown trees time after time they're simply not going to do that tree anymore but specialists might have what you're after okay let's okay bag. let's go
1: to the bag yeah. i have a bunch of of questions one says fancy chrysanthemums yeah great uh, and Lois. just fyi see attached i guess it takes a pretty good greenhouse operation to get plants to grow so uniformly this is for yeah. Keith. and what the pictures show is uh, and you'll see this if you go you know grocery stores whatever in town you'll see a pot with Very small flowered chrysanthemums, totally filling it as a complete circle. And in some of them, you have three different colors, all exactly the same size, shape, not a speck of leaf showing. It's just amazing. It's like this globe. Yes, modern,
0: modern living through chemistry is what you're seeing there. So uh, chrysanthemums are really quite easy to grow and anybody who likes them can simply buy ones they like in nurseries in the fall or get one from a florist department of a Grocery store or a good quality florist, anytime, and plant that out in your garden, and it will get into a natural bloom cycle of initiating flowers here in the late summer and blooming in the fall. And your plant in your garden won't look anything like the plant that you bought in the case of the ones that you bought from the grocery store or the florist. If you go to a nursery that sells what we call garden mums, those are small flowered, tight blooming, compact plants that generally don't need as much pinching or shaping. And I find that when I use the term pinching, a lot of novice gardeners look at me wondering what I mean, and I realize that is jargonish, pinching the growing tips at certain intervals of the growth cycle to get them to branch out and be more compact and bloom more tightly than if they were just left to their own devices. For fun, if you see a chrysanthemum that you like, buy it, let it finish its bloom, cut off the blossoms, go stick it out in your garden someplace in a sunny location, just let it grow the way it wants to. And I can tell you, having done this many times, uh, because there's some really cool and interesting chrysanthemums out there. I've stuck them in in a lot of different places over time. It'll grow up, it'll flop over, it'll sprawl, it'll put out blooms, and it'll be this big plant that looks a lot like asters or penstemon or something like that. It doesn't have that nice tight growth habit, except that chrysanthemums have been grown, cultivated, and treasured for so many years, centuries that a number of very tight growing forms have been developed. So for a home gardener, looking for one that keeps the tight growth habit is gonna be the way to get a nice looking chrysanthemum in your yard, a garden mum, something like that. However, the way they achieve what he sent us a picture of is by the use of plant growth regulators. They uh, There are plant hormones applied to chrysanthemums. That's the very first application of plant growth hormones in the horticulture industry was to develop Products that you could spray on the chrysanthemum at certain stages of growth that would either make a tighter growth habit or get them to branch out from the base more or initiate flowering uh, in a tighter manner and create these very uniform products. Gibberellins are used. There's a bunch of things that cause shorter internode distances and so on. And these are used, most people don't know this, there's about 10 or 11 different growth regulator products that are applied to bedding plants and color items, which is what we call chrysanthemums, florist type crops at various stages of growth to create that incredibly uniform product. They have probably, if you have three different colors in a pot, obviously three different plants. It's not one chrysanthemum that has those three different colors putting them in the container together, subjecting them to the same hormone treatment during growth leads to plants that grow and look the same. And that's how they get that incredibly uniform appearance. If you took that same plant home, put it in your garden. If it's a smaller flowered chrysanthemum, I'll give you this general rule. If it's a smaller flowered chrysanthemum, when you're buying it, it's probably going to be a smaller flowered chrysanthemum when it grows and blooms for you. And will have a typically tighter growth habit, though, not always the great big, fancy ones. I've grown those, the plants will get four feet tall if you stake them, sprawl four feet if you don't stake them. They'll have these big old blooms but they won't be holding themselves up, right? You have to stake them or cage them or do all these fancy things that people do to make the plant look, keep it up off the ground and make the flowers look perfect. So the way they do that is with the use of modern horticultural uh, hormone sprays is uh, the simple, simple um, explanation.
1: Gardening through chemistry.
0: Modern living through chemistry, yes. But the same plant will grow in your garden just fine. It'll just be a very different looking plant. And they still make very nice flowers. And I have one out along my driveway. It's now in total shade. But until a couple of years ago, it bloomed year after year after year in September without any care from me. And it was increasing shade as time went by. Finally, so much shade that it, it stopped blooming a couple of years ago. But 25 years, at least, out of that one plant, it's a pretty good run for a flowering perennial.
1: Can you take cuttings from those and, oh, yeah. and move it to a sunny location?
0: Yeah, they're very, yes. And you can divide them. And this is very timely. You can take cuttings anytime. Uh, you can divide them now in the fall. This is a great time to do that. You can dig it up. You can, it's a, it's a tight clump. Uh, you'll find if you dig it out of the ground, it's very easy to tell how to divide it. You may do a little cutting, but for the most part, you just kind of chunk, tug off chunks of them, wash them off. If you want to clean them up, to cut off the part that just bloomed. It is the classic, herbaceous perennial. We often use that term here when we're talking about flowers that come back year after year, not woody ones, not shrubs like lavenders and things like that, but the ones that are soft wooded, where it grows and blooms, and then the part that blooms doesn't bloom again. So you cut it to the ground when it's done. And at the ground, as you're doing that, you see a bunch of shoots forming ready to grow next year and bloom. And those you leave alone. You cut off the part that has bloomed, chrysanthemums, true asters, Many of the garden penstemons, I mean, I can think of a zillion other herbaceous perennials, but when I'm talking about them, I usually show a chrysanthemum because almost everybody knows what a chrysanthemum is. And that's a classic herbaceous perennial. If you want to divide herbaceous perennials, fall is the best time to do that. So it's a very timely question.
1: And if I went to the grocery store and bought one of those globes of three colors, after I would wait till after the blooms had stopped and then I'd pull it apart and I'd get three plants.
0: At least, yeah, you could break probably break it into more because the plants do divide pretty easily. Yeah, if you see one that you like, it's very, very, very in, easy to increase chrysanthemums. Now, I've known people who were involved in the chrysanthemum society. As with roses and camellias and all these other flowers, they can tell you exactly how to grow a perfect chrysanthemum flower, the biggest one you ever saw or the most perfect form or whatever. There's a lot of steps involved in that that don't use garden chemicals. You don't have to spray them with these hormones. They're mainly looking for a big, perfect flower for an exhibition, just like rose growers are. So their advice is tailored towards that. And uh, at the base of it, I'd like them to start with this sentence. Chrysanthemums are very easy to grow. I really wish they would all start with that. Here's what we do to get big, perfect flowers. You don't have to do that in your own garden if you like chrysanthemums stick it out in the garden it doesn't really need any special care they get aphids yeah do whatever you want to do about aphids beyond that cutting them back is kind of important or they look sort of rough after they're done blooming you can divide them in the fall and full sun is definitely best for chrysanthemums especially here
1: okay let's move on now the next one This is uh, from Arash, who signs himself your loyal Davis Garden Show listener. Hello, Don and Lois. I hope you're doing well. No, I'm not going to ask if now it's a good time to plant tomatoes. As you can (laughs) tell, He's 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 a regular listener. But while I was listening to your 1028 show and hearing Don's description of beneficial aspects of those parasitizing wasps that help us home gardeners and keep the aphid population under control, it got me to thinking, Lois, cover your ears or stop reading. (laughs) We need to find something that parasitizes those white-crowned sparrows. I sure would be the first to do whatever I can to provide a great habitat for such (laughs) parasitic. Parasitistic, parasitistic friends
0: parasitistic Para, well, parasitic, parasitic, parasitic friend. well let's not parasit- so, parasitize so we're not going to
1: paras- what's a, what is parasitic it means something that uh, attacks the animal from inside right
0: yeah, yeah basically
1: okay. so we're not going to do that no.
0: but no. and there are parasit- for those of you who are par- want
1: a something that eats white crown sparrows yeah that's
0: easy in
1: your yard in your garden about the only thing I can think of is Cooper's hawks or sharp-shinned hawks. One right. of those little forest hawks that does hang out in residential areas at times, yeah. but can only get your white-crowned sparrows yeah. if they're out in the open. Right.
0: So, um, I'm so here's some. Encouraging hawks in your backyard. That's the first, yes. And also, um, we're not going to encourage anyone to parasitize higher order animals. That's not a good plan. So you go to the higher, higher order animals when you're looking for a natural predator, which would include felines or larger avian predators. And we're we're talking about the larger avian predators when we're talking about the Cooper's hawk. Uh, Or marsh hawk is what I have on my property. Um, But yes, felines in theory would do it. But you know what? There's plenty of feral cats out there. And I would say that the the white-crowned sparrow population is in an equilibrium presently with whatever higher order predators you actually have. They're hard to catch. They hide in the bushes. (laughs) So that gets us back to actual actual vertebrate pest control.
1: Real things you can do about white crown sparrows. Now I have a little more information for you, Don. It's not just white crown sparrows. In your garden, in that flock, there are also golden crown sparrows. And there's probably even some juncos now and then. But the, oh, and the white crown sparrows always get the blame because those black and white racing stripes on the heads of the adults easy to spot if it's just sort of brown up there you really don't necessarily know if it's juvenile or golden crown or whatever but those black and white racing stripes give them away and you said something about the the hawks they have to have the sparrows out in the open in order to come and get the sparrows. The sparrows know this. And so they try to not be out in the open. And that's why if you have a garden that is edged on one side by bushes and on the other side by open lawn, you're gonna find that the sparrows are doing most of the damage over on the side that's by the bushes because they wanna get to the bushes to protect themselves and hide from those hawks and other predators. And so they're less willing to get far away from the bush. So there's one of the things you can think about in your winter garden. If you're not going to plant as much as you did in your summer garden, plant away from the bushes, plant that side of the garden first, and you'll reduce your problems with
0: yeah, I sent you some pictures, I think, last week, and maybe we can post them. I'm doing a lot of these in 15-gallon containers, a lot of the winter vegetables, just so I can take pictures of how they grow and things like that. I've done six planters in 15-gallon containers of peas, all the different kinds of peas that we sell. There's a couple new snap peas on the market. I wanted to try them. There's a purple snap pea, which sounds really cool. Snap peas are the ones where you can eat the whole pod, and they're, they're by far the most popular peas. So what I'm doing is six plants in each in a 15 gallon container in the best potting soil that we sell at our nursery because that's what I want you all to do. So I'm experimenting with it. They're going in a 15 gallon container. I'm taking one of my tomato cages that is now done and just setting that around the container. It's working great. I have them in a long row in the backyard going from one side to the other in the area that gets the most sun right now. I'm waiting for my trees to drop their leaves. And I went out and they all took right away from planting four to five weeks ago, started running off across the surface of the container and starting to head up the tomato cages. And I thought, this is great. This is really the way to do this. And I went out one morning and one of those containers, every single leaf had been stripped off of all six plants. And the next container over, one side of the pot, the plants had had their leaves stripped off and the other side was okay. And the other four are untouched and you can guess These go across the yard. One
1: next to the bush, right? right.
0: And those tomato cages, by the way, apparently make perfect perches for them. So that's a slight drawback of this technique, but there's not much you can do about that because peas do need to climb on something. So I'm just going to keep replanting that one and experiment with various exclusion practices. And that, other than location and creating a more open environment so that the birds would be exposed to the sky and to those Cooper's hawks and others would be to uh, make a physical barrier. And physical barriers are the only answer I can give for a lot of vertebrate pests. That's the term we in the industry use for anything that's a four-legged or a bird or, you know, basically squirrels, rats, uh, things that are underground, that type of thing we consider vertebrate pests. They're very difficult to control because most commonly my customer base doesn't want to kill them. Mm-hmm. And so, if you're talking about let's say tree rats or white crown sparrows, suggesting that they shoot them, and Davis isn't going to go Not over going, well. No, so we have, and we don't want to poison any of these things because those higher order predators are out there and could be injured by the poison. So we just do barriers. We do barriers until the plants are established. I can tell you this part from experience. Once the plants have been in for five or six weeks they tend to start leaving them alone. As the plants get better established, they just really like the tender young seedlings for the first few weeks. And this gets back to a point that I've made on other pests. Most pest cycles are about four to six weeks. It's the first few weeks after planting or a particular population cycle of an insect or whatever. I've just observed this over the years. Aphids show up in March. They're a real problem for the first three or four weeks then natural predators come along, and by five to six weeks in, the populations are dropping and stabilized. And this goes for earwigs. They show up in April. They do a lot of damage to young seedlings. By mid-May, late May, they're dispersing, and they're far less of a problem. They're still out there, but they've come into an equilibrium. The question is, and that's a wildlife biology term there, the question is whether that equilibrium is something you can tolerate. Um, You know, if the earwigs are doing a little damage to leaves and the plants are growing strong at that point, then it's not a real concern. If the white-crowned sparrows are doing a little damage to young seedlings, but the plants are basically vigorous and growing, that's fine. The most vulnerable stage, of course, always is the first three to four weeks of the growth cycle of the seedling. So covering it over, when I'm suggesting people consider covering over their bed with floating row cover or frost blanket, that type of thing to exclude these types of vertebrate pests, you don't have to do it through the whole growing season. You have to do it until the plants are established. I'll try to repost those pictures we got last year from uh, customers in Davis who, after their fourth planting of peas, went out and bought some half-inch PVC pipe, and they had raised planter beds, and they just bent the pipe over and secured it to the planter beds and covered it over with frost blanket or row cover, as it's called, took clothes pins to hold it in place, and got the plants up and established and then finally took it off. The advantage of row cover is it allows enough sunlight in that you can just leave it on there for that several weeks. In fact, it creates a little bit of a greenhouse. So it might, as we get colder, it might help things grow a little bit faster. Um, You don't wanna leave it on there all winter, particularly because you'd be better with as much sunlight as possible and better to have the air movement that would reduce the likelihood of, let's say mildew on the peas, for example. But for the first few weeks, four or five, six weeks, even first couple of months, leaving it on there is perfectly reasonable. And it was not a complicated process. These folks are in their upper 70s and they were able to put this together without difficulty. And the cost of materials was not that great. If you have a raised planter, this is the simplest thing in the world because you can just attach something to the planter and turn your planter into essentially a protected environment. Out in the open garden, it's a bit more challenging. You just take, let's say four stakes, one by one stakes, Put them in around the plant, just as if you were going to protect it from frost, or put them in around the bed, however many stakes that takes. Drape the row cover or frost blanket over them, so that basically the plants are still freestanding inside there. And figure out some way to secure it to those stakes that will be easy enough to remove a little bit further down the road. And we'll white them. Kind
1: of, just laying two by fours on the the edge of the, the thing as it's laying on the ground would be fine. Yeah, Remember something, something these these birds are not going to be uh, attempting to get into that. It's not like they're trying to break out. And breaking in isn't important to them as long as they have other food sources in the neighborhood. Now, if you had a yard that you had absolutely flattened bare, and the only (laughs) thing they could get was your peas, they would, they would be there. But mostly these these are birds that are going to be looking underneath the bushes for seeds and and little things. So Don, why don't you just take that last planter that's right next to the bush and abandon that and put one at the other end where there is no bush? No that my would save you much work.
0: No, my intention is to frustrate myself just like my customers so that I can see what they go through and we can commiserate. And the, the question is how many times will I have to replant that planter? before they'll leave it alone. That's my question. Now, my next step will be, because I've got
1: not, five. Not, that's not a logical question. The answer to that question <laughs> is, when they leave in the spring, they won't be eating your your little plants. You give somebody a salad, if they like salad, they're gonna eat it.
0: We'll see. I'll report back in a few weeks. <laughs> this is good news. I have four and a half other planters that are doing fine, so we're you know we're learning to uh, to eat, uh, adapt to each other here in this garden. <laughs> the, other,
1: the other thing to to consider is that now that it is starting to rain, a lot of weed seeds are going to be coming up, yes. and so you're going to have a lot of salad greens for the birds under the bushes. And close to the bushes and out there, they're not going to have to come after your peas if they have enough food closer by.
0: Yes, that's an excellent segue into the topic of things we can be doing right now in the garden. And one of those is that we just got seven to nine inches of rain in the vicinity seven or eight days ago. And there is in my orchard and field a fine carpet of weed seedlings that have come up in that five in first within the first three to five days and then a whole lot now within a full week. This is an extremely important time for weed management Uh, you've had your first rain those seedlings are up they're extremely easy to control right now with whatever measure you like you can use flame you can use mowing you can use. Tilling, if you want, although we discourage that, it can function. You use white
1: crowned sparrows.
0: Well, well, they don't eat enough. Apparently, they prefer peas. <laughs> <bees, laughs> evidently, so their their preference doesn't appear to be the things coming up in my field. I have noticed a lot of field birds out there because there's lots of stuff going on out there. So whether you're going to spray them, mow them, mulch them, till them, hoe them, that's the simplest by far. Or here's one: cover them with something. You know, if you have an area you're going to be planting a little bit later, just spread a tarp or uh, or some landscape fabric or black plastic secured down for a few weeks to kill those weeds, it'll kill them very quickly. Because here's the core principle. Uh, Almost every weed is easy to control in the four to six leaf stage. Even hard to kill ones can be managed if you go after them in the four to six leaf stage. Many of them right now, here in the Sacramento Valley, are in the two to four leaf stage. So you got about two weeks to get going on this. Okay.
1: Okay. So we have a lot of other things to talk about. I think what I'd like to do is, Don gave a, a, me a, a, an outline for a presentation that hid for OLLI, O-L-L-I, which is the-
0: OSHER Lifelong, Lifelong Learning Institute. Learning. OSHER Lifelong okay. Learning Institute, yep.
1: And that is uh, something that anyone can sign up for. And I, I commend it to you. They have some wonderful, wonderful things, including Don doing presentations. And so he, it's this like 12 pages long from the two hours that he talked. We're not going to do all that. But there was one interesting thing that I thought would be good for the show. Right now, in your garden, you can plant yes, some would- seedlings. Yep. seedlings of arugula broccoli and all those other things beets celeries peas, fava beans bunching grasses etc and from seed you can still put in beets carrots fava beans peas, uh, radishes and turnips there's I didn't read all of those down so why don't you talk to us about the seedlings that you suggest or prefer?
0: Yeah, at this time of year, uh, we're still planting many of the brassicas. That's the term we use for members of the, the mustard family, the brassica oleracea derivatives, broccoli, broccolini, broccoli rob, which is actually more closely related to turnips, cabbage, collards, mustard, greens, all of those things can be still be planted. Now, if it's one that forms a very big head, like a long cabbage or a, uh, the old-fashioned kinds of broccoli, the regular large heads of cauliflower, and the Romanesco, those we generally plant earlier. We plant them anywhere from late July into September, so they develop a big plant in order to form a big head. You can plant those now, but they won't produce until probably late February or March. It is too late. I know you'll be disappointed to plant Brussels sprouts or rutabagas here in the Sacramento Valley. Should have gotten those in back in, in uh, July or August. But all those other things, especially the broccolis that re-sprout or the broccoli, the new forms that are just sprouting broccoli, which are really cool, actually, they don't form a big old head. They do either a small head and a bunch of side shoots, which it will say on the label if that variety does that, or they just do entirely side shoots or ones like brock
1: which are grown
0: just for the stem. It's a form of broccoli that's got a very tender stem and a very small head. Those can go in right on through the winter. And then the leafy greens, which are far and away, over the last four or five years, they've become the most popular category of winter vegetables, in part because they're so easy to grow and you can do them right on through the winter. Beets being grown for greens. Yes, they will form beets, but a lot of people are just planting them for the for the greens, the green leaves. Kale, the number one selling Leafy green vegetable at my garden center now for at least five years. Lettuce, right up there with it, very close. Spinach, still very popular. Swiss chard, uh, not as popular, but we can grow it year round here. That's one of the only greens we can. All can go in, and you can crowd them. You can. This is the reason I always like to show pictures of a barrel with you know thirty of these plants in it. Even if you don't have room for a big garden, you can do a small container filled with leafy greens of all these different kinds where you're cutting the little sprout and cutting the leaf and taking the the leaves off the outer part or cutting the whole head of kale or whatever. You can even stick in some bunching onions to use as scallions. Very close together, four to six inches apart is absolutely fine because you're gonna be harvesting, trimming, grooming, pinching, cutting to keep any one of those from crowding out the others. You can harvest off that all the way through March starting now and in fact, starting a couple months ago if you wanted to. So those are all things you can plant close together because you're just eating the leafy green part basically. And it is still time, although you better move on it quickly because these night temperatures are dropping rapidly. We're gonna go down at night, 10 to 12 degrees over the next week. Seeds planted out will germinate much more slowly as the soil and the night temperatures get colder. So beets should come up fine. Uh, Fava beans, you can plant all the way into January. And peas, you're right on the edge of your last time for planting them out directly in the garden, but you can pre-germinate them indoors and then plant them out, or you can buy them at local garden centers and transplant them out. And radishes can be planted basically anytime. time. So as we get colder at night, we get into winter, people think we can't plant anymore. It's just a narrow planting window. It is true that the window for planting some things is past. Big cabbages, not so great. But in every one of those categories, Breeders have developed much faster developing forms. I happen to have a cabbage that I've never personally grown before, so I've planted it that only takes 47 days. Normally there's 60, minimum 90 in the case of some of the old fashioned cabbages. Here we have one that's coming, comes on, grows rapidly, forms a small head, you know, like a five inch head. 47 days is what's on the label. So in the case of broccoli, likewise, there's some that develop very rapidly. There's one cauliflower that uh, that b- develops very quickly. It's become the one most of us sell because of that. So there are earlier, faster developing forms of all of these brassicas that you can plant if that's what you're interested in. But the window for planting goes through November. You can still plant in December, but it may be cold enough, the plants won't make a lot of active growth, depends on where your planter is more than anything. And we start up again, in late January on a lot of those things. And it doesn't hurt to plant them during January. It's just that it's cold enough that their growth will be slow. So that window is wider than it seems. It really depends on the weather, obviously, but there's a lot of things you can still plant.
1: You have been saying lettuce, 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 Uh, What are you talking about? Because I'm thinking of iceberg lettuce, which is a big old headed thing, and that's not gonna work this late in the season, is it? That's not an easy
0: one to grow. No, there's four categories of lettuce, and of the four, that's the one that isn't easy for home gardeners. Um, There's romaine, um, there's, uh, let me pull up the official term so that if people are looking for them at home, they can find them. There are green leaf, romaine, butterhead, An iceberg and the first three have open habits the leaves are separated there's air movement even if water gets in there it dries up and the plant is not subjected to disease problems or rot iceberg the leaves fold over as it grows in other words you know you've seen the head you know what it looks like that can lead to problems in a cold wet winter climate like this cold relatively speaking for lettuce so people who grow iceberg lettuce here there was a commercial grower of iceberg lettuce outside of dixon for many years it was very interesting to watch them do it would plant in august and they would flood the fields completely for the first week or so while they're waiting for the plants to germinate they would grow them so that they could harvest them in november and uh, if they were lucky they didn't get a lot of rain they didn't get cold temperatures that might cause some leaf injury and then followed by rain that was the worst combination if that happens the head rots on the inside so that obviously from market issues you know, we made it a challenging crop here in the Sacramento Valley, to put it mildly. But green leaf, romaine, butterhead are all fine. They have open habit. If it's really wet, they, the water just runs right on through. So those are the type we suggest people focus on. And lettuce is actually quite easy to grow, but there are a couple issues with it in terms of the timing.
1: Is red leaf lettuce a variation of green leaf lettuce?
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the easiest. I mean, there are varieties that are just proven reliable. Some of the many of the red leaf types, Uh, black seeded Simpson heirloom lettuce variety that's been around for over a hundred years. Great, very easy for home gardeners to grow, and you can handle these like kale. You can just pick off leaves. And use them, rinse those leaves, put them in your salad, or if it's formed up a head, a loose head, you can go ahead and harvest the whole thing. You can do that with your kale, you can do that with your spinach, and then just plant a new one in there. So you can just go, you know, pick up a six-pack of them at your local garden center, harvest the ones you're using, stick a few new ones in. Don't worry about crowding them. That's actually okay. Doesn't matter if they're a little bit crowded in there. The issue with lettuce, actually, it's easy to grow. There's even forms now that won't bolt or bloom until summer. So if you go to the farmer's market in Davis, there's one of the farmers there it's been selling a variety called Sierra for several years now, because it doesn't get triggered to bloom um, until way on into the summer. So he's able to bring lettuce to sell at the farmer's market in June or even July. Probably shading it a little bit would be my guess, but uh, he's able to grow it without it trying to go to flower. Initiation of flowering on on lettuce is uh, called bolting. And when it starts to bolt, it tends to get more bitter, The bitter compounds in lettuce are very noticeable to some people, much less so to others. Romaine lettuce, for example, tends to be a lot more bitter flavored to a lot of people than others. Most people like it. Some people don't like romaine because it has more of those bitter compounds in there. Uh, stress is definitely a factor in how bitter lettuce tastes. And so if you're trying to grow it, particularly at the hotter end of the season, let's say you plant it in March, you can still buy them in garden centers. They'll grow, they'll be triggered into bolting in about May, but the flavor is not going to be great. And in my opinion, the texture is diminished as we get out of the rainy season. So the optimal time for lettuce is in our cool rainy season. If you think about it, where lettuce is grown commercially in California, it's either down in the Imperial Valley in the winter where the weather is very mild or all up and down the coastal agricultural zones where it's always 63 degrees, (laughs) the weather is always mild. And that's where the best lettuce comes from. But for us, it's something we plant from about, let's say, late September, October. It's best November through February in terms of flavor, texture, quality. You can continue to harvest lettuce into the spring. By the time you get to late spring, 90 degrees is going to definitely increase the bitterness and uh, reduce it. It gets tougher texture, more fibrous. And so really, I would consider lettuce season to be October through early March.
1: And you're talking about the exact same plant or the exact same, at least species, but are there different species of the same variety that some are more bitter than others or is it all temperature, weather? sort
0: of thing? There are differences. Romaine is known to have more of that bitter flavor. And again, some people like bitter. This is something I, when I use the term bitter, a lot of people think, oh, I don't want any of that. Well, if you don't, you probably would never eat a grapefruit. I mean, bitterness is in a lot of things that we eat and it's part of the flavor. Uh, You will find in many people who are, I remember this whole thing about super tasters, being people with highly sensitive uh, taste buds who taste bitter more strongly. Well, they exist. I mean, I have two kids and one of them, if you gave her a Brussels sprout when she was a toddler, she'd take one bite and make a face that was priceless. The other one ate them as if they were apples. I mean, my kid would eat Brussels sprouts raw, just gnawing on them. And most people would watch that and be rather flabbergasted that a three-year-old was eating raw Brussels sprouts. He didn't care about bitter flavor. So people do differ in that regard. There's a lot of lettuce relatives that are very bitter, and grown intentionally for that. And then things are done to make them not bitter or less bitter, or they have the bitterness balanced by sweetness or something. And a good example is chicory or undive or undive or endive, as you prefer. There's a special process they put them through at the end of the growth cycle where they grow them in the darkness to exclude light, which etiolates the leaves, that's today's vocabulary word, and makes them sweeter. And so the bitterness is still there, but it's balanced with the sweetness. And endive is considered to be an intentionally bitter green, leafy green, or in some cases, cooked green. Uh, Frise, which is curly endive. Radicchio. Personally, I cannot stand radicchio. I don't know why anybody would put it in a salad, but it is an intentionally bitter, leafy green that people like to toss in with other greens and you're going along and all of a sudden you get that in your mouth and you wonder what went wrong. It's intentional. It's got the bitterness of lettuce. It is like lettuce, same family. It's more closely aligned to chicory. Sometimes they will blanch radicchio to make it sweeter and milder, but it's a lettuce relative that has that more pronounced bitter flavor. All of those are easy to grow. Anyone that just mentioned escarole, undive, frise, radicchio, just stick them in with the, the uh, spinach and the kale and the lettuce in your mixed planter and harvest them. Just be aware that some members of your family may make that priceless expression when <laughs> they buy into it, and others will probably be fine with it. You never know.
1: This is from Annie and says, thanks for your fabulous podcast. After decades of gardening in the sandy soil of San Francisco, I moved 16 miles north to San Rafael, that's in zone 16, in Marin County, and I'm adjusting to dry, hot summers and clay soil. Your show has provided lots of help. Our next-door neighbors recently cut down more than 170 40-foot-tall Italian cypresses that surrounded the border of their property because of the wildfire hazard. Several white oleanders sprouted up between the stumps between our south-facing driveways, and I seem to recall that you said that it's possible to propagate oleanders by push putting branches in the ground during rainy weather. If so, adding a few more dreaded oleanders would help <laughs> my view without too much cost or effort. It's on their property, but they are open to the idea. Otherwise, they want to add planters or some sort of other plants and share the cost with us. Thanks you for your help. Yeah, so happy. can you just all. take your oleander stick and stick them in the ground?
0: Yeah, I knew someone in in San Diego who took branches of oleanders and branches of poinsettia, which grow outdoors in uh, um, Southern California, and alternated them just by sticking branches in the ground. Down there, they did it in the middle of the winter, but remember, that's a frost-free environment. Put them on every few feet, poinsettia, oleander, poinsettia, oleander. They happened to use the white oleander, so it made a spectacular combination. All of them rooted. So oleanders are really quite easy to root. And uh, well, you won't get 100% rooting, the cost is right because you're starting with something that costs basically nothing. I would suggest for a higher percentage that you dip the cut end in a rooting hormone. If you really wanted, let's say you really wanted to propagate this and be sure to get a high success rate, then I would do them in containers in a properly developed, fast draining soil mix. But if you got plenty to work with and you just want a bunch of oleanders, just go ahead and put them right in the ground, water thoroughly at the time of planting, make sure that those cuttings that soil in that area doesn't dry out uh, during the winter in case we don't happen to have enough winter rainfall and especially the crucial time is as we get into the spring when the rains stop and the plant has some roots and is developing you know developing a root system and the soil begins to dry out you need to keep perhaps a drip line going on them every few days depending on your soil uh, to keep those roots alive and you'll probably find at least half of them a very high likelihood of rooting. My suggestion would be I like oleanders, I'm going to say this. I know oleanders are one of those plants that people just love to hate because they are perhaps the most widely planted plant in California, thanks to the highway department. But in their place, they are indestructible, tough, drought-tolerant, heat-tolerant, they bloom all summer. You know, they've got a lot going for them in that regard. I wouldn't like to see you replace, what was it, 140 Italian cypresses?
1: 170, 40-foot tall Italian cypress. Huh? an
0: incredibly terrible loss. <laughs> even, even with my feelings about the way Italian cypresses are, are used, that's, I don't know many, how many years of plant growth was just chopped down there. But if you're going to replace that many, I wouldn't replace that many with oleanders. I would put some oleanders, and I'd put some Toyon, California native, and I might put in some Xylosma because it's tough and draws bees in the fall. And I might put in some Ceanothus if it's an area that's going to be on the dry end. In other words, a mixed planting of some native, some non-native, and, and you know, plants all from similar rainfall climate cycle climate regions and uh, eventually have a very drought tolerant mixed planting there has some advantages we talk about birds a lot on this program When we first bought our property we put in a few oleanders in corners we put in ceanothus those are long gone by the way but they were great for about 15 years you get these different levels of how where plants grow we didn't have any birds on our property when we first bought it because it was a field we had field birds that was it We put in these shrubs, we quickly got songbirds. And then we got other kinds of birds that would come in because of the mixed Height, at least that's my theory, of cover, the mixed levels of foliage, the flowers at different seasons, the the little berries on the uh, ceanothus that you don't notice, but the songbirds do, or someone does. The uh, toyon, which draws, I mean, going out right now as they're coloring up, anytime I walk near my toyon, there's songbirds sitting up in the tree nearby. I assume they're eating the berries, at least they seem to like the toyon plants. And so you get this mixture of flowers at different times, fruit at different times, different heights and different densities. I think that's probably the biggest factor right there where they can, as we tell you with white-crowned sparrows, all the good birds can run in and hide when you walk by or a cat goes by or something like that. One big wall of all the same stuff will lead to a smaller range of diversity in that kind of wildlife, but at least it would give you some privacy. But I almost always like to suggest now because of the years of watching this pest problem, that disease problem fires are just the latest wrinkle in this equation. Um, have a mix of things. You know, there's oleander problems in other parts of the state. If you did a whole wall of oleanders, what if you got the disease that's killing them off in southeastern California? Uh, So if that happened, hey, the toyon would be there. The c will grow really fast and pretty high likelihood it won't last more than five or 10 years. In that time, it'll be beautiful. The flowers will be great. The bees will love it. Birds absolutely love it. Meanwhile, the toyon's plugging along two to three feet a year. You have to take out that ceanosis. Hey, it's already there. So a mixed planting is always better. But yes, an easy way to start is oleander branches, dig the end in rooting hormone powder, stick it in the mud, make sure it gets watered, especially in the spring as the soil starts to dry out. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore.
1: And Lois Richter here at KDRT LP 95.7 in Davis, California.